Welcome to another episode of And Another Thing, the podcast that continues to set and then break podcast records around the world. My name is Jody Jenkins. My name is Tony Clement. And Tony, we are so excited. We got another exciting guest on the program. We're going to get to him in just a couple seconds, but I did want to ask how are you doing? I feel like I don't ask you enough how you're doing. It's always about, uh, it's always so about me. <laughs> it's, you're so sweet. But, you know, we're, we're now distancing again. We were in studio a couple weeks ago. Uh, but, uh, alas, our schedules are such that we are doing this by distance. So I, I miss you, buddy. Yeah, we're going to have to get you down here. We're going to have to do a bunch of episodes right in a row. And, of course, we'll have to do our other favorite pastime besides podcasting, which is golf. So we'll have yes. to, and uh, maybe you can bring your guitar and serenade some people on the course. I well, uh, you know, if we want to maybe uh, make sure that we've got the whole course to <laughs> ourselves, that is a good plan. Oh, you don't want to play with us? Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, the foursome has become a twosome. Yeah, exactly. All right, so I know you've got a great guest lined up. We're excited for this one. Lots of great questions are going to come out. It's very timely, and I'm going to throw it over to you, and you can uh, introduce this gentleman. Thank you. Yeah, it is our pleasure to welcome to the And Another Thing podcast, Dr. Robert Foster. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He is the founder of multiple pharmaceutical companies. He's a professor at the Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Alberta. He's uh, joining us from Edmonton. He's published over 200 papers and abstracts. Now, he's involved in a biotech company called Hepion, I believe that's how you pronounce it, Pharmaceuticals, which has offices in both Edmonton and New Jersey. And he's been working on a, a treatment uh, called CRV431, which assists uh, lungs that have been injured due to COVID-19. So uh, it's a really interesting area. It gets us into the into the COVID discussion with a learned person. So, Dr. Foster, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Um, uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Well, uh, let's get going, and I'd love to know how you got started working on COVID treatments. What? Uh, how did this work? How, what, does, what sparked it for you? Uh, what sparked it? Um, actually, the pandemic sparked it. Um, so, of course, we, you know, we didn't set out initially to develop uh, a treatment for COVID. Uh, we were actually developing a treatment for NASH, which is an acronym that just stands for um, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. It just means, um, uh, you know, basically a fatty liver that's become really inflamed and fibrotic or scarred um, uh, to, to a fairly extensive uh, degree. And um, as we are working on that and, and on the liver fibrosis, uh, one of the other studies we looked at was lung fibrosis because there's something out there called interstitial pulmonary fibrosis. We just call it IPF because it's a lot easier to say. Um, but the IPF basically turns your lungs into concrete, um, being a little bit dramatic here. But nevertheless, just to get the point across, uh, people really can't breathe and, and it can be fatal. And there's no really good treatments for it. So as we were doing some research in the U.K., with a company over there on the IPF uh, indication, that's when the pandemic sort of reared its ugly head earlier this year. And so, you know, obviously we look at one another and we say, well, if we're looking at lung fibrosis, 
with this new uh, pandemic that's caused by something called SARS two. Um, what's you know what 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 are the downstream effects of this this new um, viral infection? Is there any lung um, complication um, secondary to the infection? And indeed, that is the case. Um, there's probably about a third of the people that develop uh, you know a, a coronavirus infection, the COVID nineteen, um, will go on to have some sort of um, loss of of lung function, and the the function or the functional loss is caused by that lung scarring and inflammation. So as you can imagine, it's just like, it's just like your skin. Like if you were, if you were to cut yourself with a, you know, butcher knife or something like that, um, you're going to see a big scar eventually. And that scar, uh, is, is such that the tissue is not flexible and, and, and it's not functioning as what it, what it used to be functioning like. Uh, and that's the same thing for the lungs. So what we thought we'd do is try our CRV 431. I'll just call it CRV. It's a lot easier to say, but we sure. tried CRV in, in the lungs. And um, and we did some experiments that indicated that we had a really nice effect. Um, so that's why we decided let's let's see if we can do something positive uh, towards uh, treating COVID-19. So does it, does CRV then heal the lungs or how, how does it, how does it work? Because a scar... I guess uh, if you're using the analogy of a scar, it does fade over time. Is that how it works with CRV as well? Well, we think it might. I mean, it's probably too early to tell, but there's a dynamic process of, um, you know, driving towards scar formation. It's just, it's a protein called collagen that that creates that scar. So uh, it's a dynamic process of laying down the collagen versus, you know, ripping apart the collagen or, or, you know, antifibrotic activity. So it is kind of a, a push and pull. Um, so we're trying obviously to, to break that scar down as much as possible and any of the things that might lead to the scarring. So for example, the inflammation and something you may have heard about, um, you know, through the media as well is these things called cytokine storms. Um, these are, you know, where the, where the antibodies or the immune response triggers something in a patient that just makes your whole immune system go crazy and you get a lot of inflammation and, and fibrosis downstream of that. So we're also trying to figure out if we have an effect against some of these cytokines that come ripping in there um, with this type of infection. So there's there's that piece of it too. And then there's a final piece that I haven't mentioned yet, which is um, probably going back now about four to five years, we also know that CRV431 has an antiviral effect. So we've oh, really? checked yeah, so we've checked against things like, for example, hepatitis B and hepatitis C, as well as HIV-1. And initially, many, many years ago, four or five years ago, we did some work at the NIH in the U.S., um, and we showed also we had an effect against some coronavirus. So that was, a, of course, the earlier versions of the coronavirus, but it seems to, you know, it seems to reason that um, if we do have an antiviral effect, we may also have an antiviral effect against the SARS-CoV-2, which is, or the SARS-2 co- co- coronavirus, but... Um, so is, is, it, is it a much more general drug? It could be like a wonder drug on various different afflictions that are virus in nature? It, you know, it, it's interesting you use the, the wonder drug because, you know, people often talk about silver bullets and, and whatnot, but I'd, I'd hesitate to call it a wonder drug, you know, although I think, um, you know, I, we sort of jokingly sometimes say maybe we should just dump this stuff in the water supply, um, because it does so many different things, 
But um, the, the one reason, I guess the reason it does so many different things is, um, you know, we, we take drugs and we classify them in different ways. So we'll take, for example, an aspirin, and we'll say it's an anti-inflammatory or, or whatever, and it belongs to a certain class of drugs. Well, CRV-431 is belonging to a class of drugs called cyclophilin inhibitors. And that's, a, that's kind of a big mouthful for, for basically saying that this is a class of drugs that uh, um, works against a, a, class, uh, a bunch of proteins, you know, because our bodies are basically big bags of proteins. So they work against the proteins and they work uh, in a way that dictates uh, or regulates the way proteins are folded. And the folding of proteins will either keep us healthy or can actually um, keep us, you know, in a, in a disease state. And so, for example, when you look at uh, the coronavirus, it can, uh, there can be, you know, an influence of the cyclophilins on the way the virus uh, replicates, uh, right. the way parts of the virus maybe um, create proteins that, that, that fold and have a certain function. So we're trying to drill down into all that. And, and like I say, that anytime we can affect the way proteins are folded, that's why you get a broad range of activities like the sure. antiviral activities and, and so on and so forth. What, uh, what stage is this uh, drug development at and what, what comes next in its development? Sure. Well, interestingly, just yesterday we announced we entered um, phase two. So we started dosing our first patient yesterday in phase two, but that's for NASH. Um, so that's going back to the, the liver disease. Uh, right. So that started yesterday. Um, our intent actually is to see if we can uh, get, get what's called an IND, an investigational new drug application submitted for uh, treating COVID patients. And so we're lining up our regulatory affairs team and we're lining up all the, you know, the science people and the chemists and, you know, everybody who's going to need to be um, involved in this um, activity. Uh, we're lining so this everybody is up like to, with the FDA and Health Canada, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. So initially probably with the FDA, but that's with the, and I guess the, the sites, um, or at least in our, in our view, we're trying to, to, to work towards getting an IND probably uh, late fall. And then if that's the case and we're successful, um, we've already completed phase one. So the health, right. I guess, you know, the safety and tolerability is, has been well established, I think with CRV. So we can bypass that. So I guess you could say phase one is indication agnostic. It really doesn't matter. All you're looking for is, you know, safety and tolerability. So we've sure. done that. Um, so we should be able to dive right into a phase two program. Hey, can I ask your thoughts? Uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion, obviously, about a COVID vaccine. Uh, do, do you see a mm-hmm. COVID vaccine as being feasible and uh, and uh, uh, with a lot of effect? Wow, that's a that's a good question. Um, uh, I'm just asking. Like, I, yeah. I know this is not necessarily your your direct area of expertise, but uh, I, I, I will I will say at the outset, I'm I'm a I'm a skeptic on the vaccine. Not not because of the conspiracy theories or anything. I, I just think the best we can hope for is maybe a fifty or sixty percent uh, effectiveness level with a vaccine. So it, it, it's one of the things that might be helpful, but it's not going to be the magic solution to this. I think you're. I think you're right. Um, on on, you know, I'll just give you my my opinion here, my my scientific opinion, I guess. 
Um, I, first of all, I'm not, I'm not a, an expert in a vaccine, so I have to put that out front and center. Sure. Um, but you know, I do follow scientific literature and I do follow what's happening. Um, I'll start by saying that I think I read something recently that said about a third of Canadians surveyed said that they probably wouldn't even bother with a vaccine if a vaccine was available. So that knocks off that third. Um, the second thing is that um, a lot of you hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, I didn't even know I had the coronavirus. I didn't even know I was asymptomatic or even I'm asymptomatic for a number of days before I become right. symptomatic. So you need to give a vaccine, of course, before you become uh, infected and symptomatic and all the rest of it. So it's it's almost, you know, it's a, it's a protective treatment. Uh, prophylaxis is what we would call it. Uh, as opposed to an active treatment, because we don't yet, I don't believe, have those vaccines uh, being developed uh, that can actively treat patients. So um, unless you can vaccinate, you know, the herd, basically, um, I think there's going to be uh, there's going to be a bit of a challenge there because you really do need to vaccinate a lot of people um, so that you don't get the people who are not vaccinated continuing to spread the virus. Um, so there's a challenge there as well. And to vaccinate everybody, of course, if you talk about the global uh, picture, you're going you're to need billions of doses. And I know there's a lot of companies working on vaccines right now. I mean, I think I, I see that, um, you know, there's, there's the latest, I, the latest figure I saw was, and this is all companies that are kind of working in the space, but there's about 140 vaccines in development. And there's some, obviously, uh, front runners, like there's probably four front runners, um, like Moderna has been in the press quite a bit right. um, with their vaccine. And the Canadian um, government's, uh, I guess, uh, got some deal with Pfizer and Merck. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but, but I don't know how, I don't know how effective these things are. And I guess, yeah. to be honest, neither do the companies. Uh, they're like, for example, Moderna is in phase three. So they'll have the answer here pretty quick, but the reason we don't have the answer yet is because we haven't done the clinical trials. Right. Um, but right. once the trial results come out, I guess the question is, after you vaccinate and you do get a really good immune response, for example, neutralizing antibodies, and you'll get the good response, you know, how long does that response how last? Does it last? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So do you need a booster shot a month later or six months later or a year later? Or do you need maybe two shots or you know, how many shots do you need? I was talking to a guy the other day who, ha who claims he, he's had COVID twice. He was in China in January, contracted it there, then moved to New York City and contracted a, a different form of COVID in New York City. Very different symptoms. So uh, that was about five months later. So uh, that that goes to your antibodies uh, issue. Well, and, and the other thing too, I guess, you know, the antibody issue that I'm at least the one that I'm aware of or the, the approach that I'm more familiar with is people are developing um, vaccines towards this spike protein you know the one that you know like you, you take a look at people will see the picture of the virus on TV or whatever and they'll yeah, see the, this point, little, the pointy point yeah the little pointy looking thing that's that's where the name corona comes from because it's the Latin word for crown basically crown. so yeah so so that's where where people are kind of targeting vaccines is on that. So the thinking is that whether or not it's the SARS-2 or a different form of a coronavirus, maybe there's some crossover with a vaccine from one form of coronavirus to another. But I'd also point out that I think 
you know, probably up to about 30% of the common colds could be caused by coronavirus, mm-hmm. which is where you get the respiratory infect, you know, basically the respiratory sure. complications and whatnot. So, you know, people have said for years now, um, we can't treat the common cold, but, you know, maybe this will help to get us to, you know, a treatment mm-hmm. of some type for some, type. some forms of the common cold. Uh, Dr. Jody Jenkins, <laughs> what, do, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think about all this? Well, it's uh, very interesting, obviously. The only question I had, and I know we, uh, we have to respect your time, doctor, because you're a busy man, but the only, question, the only question I had was something that I'm always thinking about, and that's with the fatalities that we've seen in Canada to date. And I'd just be curious to get your thoughts, because I, I'm, this is what I'm wondering. Is it possible that the deaths that have occurred, which are way off from what the early modeling told us, and I know it was a prediction and things change and people have distanced and all that stuff, but the deaths that have occurred so far, is it possible that these are individuals that would have been susceptible to something anyway? Because deaths have dramatically changed and gone down, and I'm just wondering, like, I guess what I'm saying is, would the, is it possible these people would have would have passed away anyway? Well, the, the quick answer to that is yes, because we all pass away. <laughs> that's just, that's a fact of being human, right? So, true. Um, He's got you there, Jody. Oh, yeah, zing, zing. Yeah, I, I, you walked right, you walked right into that one. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but, but in actual fact, no, I don't, I don't know if that's the case or not. Um, so I'll put it in a different, maybe come at it from a different angle. So I, I kind of looked at the, you know, I track every day I go onto the website called Worldometer. Yep. And um, you can track every country and what's going on. Um, but yesterday, when I looked at it in Canada, there's 100, just over 118,000 cases, you know, and, and almost 103,000 of those have been recovered. But there's still just about 9,000 people died. And so when I do the, you know, the quick little math, it, it comes up to 7.6% death. Um, to me, that's an alarming, like that's a really alarming number. And so then I looked at the U.S. numbers and I looked at the world numbers as well. And in the U.S., you know, um, it's working out to about 4% death rate when you look at the total number of cases versus the number of deaths in the U.S. Um, well, it's actually, sorry, 3.25%. Uh, it's 4% for the world. And so then here's where I come at it from a different angle. I go, wow, you know, if I, if I go back to, you know, before this virus uh, came along, I was putting at least 100,000 miles a year you know, on air travel. And if, if I knew there was anywhere from, uh, let's say, 1% at the low end to maybe 4% based on global numbers, uh, chance of me dying in an airline crash, there's not a chance I would fly again because uh, the numbers are huge. And then, again, if you put it in, in sort of context, for example, in the U.S., the number of deaths in the U.S., exceeds that caused by opioids, um, traffic accidents, and gun violence combined. You put those three things together and you go, wow, that's a huge number. Um, And that's a part that kind of scares me. Like I'm thinking, wow, that's a big number. Um, I know that people, and I think it's maybe maybe driven by, um, you know, anecdotes from from younger people that say, well, I had coronavirus and I didn't feel all, all that bad. Uh, but boy, when it hits you, it can really hit you. And to your point, uh, Jody, it's just, um, I would say if you're, if you're immunocompromised or if you have pre, uh, precondition, um, yeah, you know, that 
you could get hit pretty hard. And I think one of those risk factors is obesity. So if you look at the obesity numbers in North America, certainly in the U.S. and Canada, um, you can see that uh, there's there's a number of people out there that are at risk. And one of the things we're trying to do, actually, is we're trying to drill into the genetics of this. We're trying to figure out, do you have a genetic predisposition to um, to getting it, you know, uh, really severely uh, affected by this by this virus? So we'll, we, we're not quite there yet, but we are looking at that. But um, I think certainly people are predisposed. Certain people are predisposed. So I got to ask you, though, doctor, uh, we're, we're talking with Dr. Robert Foster here of Happy on Pharmaceuticals in University of Alberta. Uh, how do you how do you rate Canada's response to COVID? Actually, uh, I would say it's, it, it's pretty good. Um, it's probably, um, you know, varies, of course, from province to province. But I think overall it's pretty good. And I'm saying that from the context of, um, you know, having an office and working in New Jersey as well, because New Jersey, New York and New Jersey got hit really, really hard. And then New York, of course, clamped down really um, aggressively uh, with uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, was really proactive there. But then, you know, you see states like uh, Florida and Texas where they didn't take it seriously, it seems, and and they're paying the price for it now, right? You know, I shouldn't say uh, they are ta- uh, paying the price. The, the population is paying the price for the um, the bumbling and fumbling of uh, politicians, uh, which is unfortunate. But um, I think overall Canada's done well. Um, and I think Canadians, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I would recommend it, but Canadians can travel. Um, uh, but, I again, I don't think I'd recommend that. But, you know, I know Americans aren't all that welcome, you know, to travel in certain other countries no i think i think that uh, the uh, the jury is in on that uh most canadians don't want american visitors here at least until the end of the year at, uh, that that seems to be where the polling shows canadian attitudes are so uh they're they're spooked by all the headlines they see from the united states and uh and they're uh they're forming their opinions accordingly and so uh, i think you're on the right side of that one I think the other thing we might have, uh, you know, that's beneficial to us is the we have a massive, huge country in terms of um, area, and we have a really low population compared to the U.S. So you know, about a tenth of the U.S. population. So the density is not quite there, except for you know places like Toronto, for example, has a density. But if you look at you know other places like New York City, like Manhattan, and, and places where I where I work. Um, or in California, you know, you've got the population of basically the population of Canada stuffed inside, you know, California. Right. But the density there is so thick, you know, with people and, you know, rubbing shoulders. Um, it's hard to socially distance in certain circumstances like that. And, and I think that's where you might see more, um, you know, more of an uptick in the viral activity. Dr. No, I was going to say it's been a great interview. I know, I know our, our guest has other commitments, so I just wanted to thank him for being on the program and wish him every success with CRV 431. Well, thank you, and thanks for the invitation. Um, I was uh, really pleased to be able to participate. Tony, you've done it again, and I guess we'll talk to you in seven days and do this all over, and we've got some exciting guests coming up. We do. We want to get uh, roll up our sleeves uh, with the Canadian political scandal, and uh, that should be part of our bread and butter as well. So stay tuned.